Welcome back to part two of this episode with John Miller on the Evolving Door podcast. Buckle in and enjoy the rest of the ride. There's a lot to learn from John, especially if you're someone who uh, wants your work to be kind of purpose-driven and part of a, a bigger mission in life. He's got some really interesting stuff to share. Make sure when you get a moment to check out RoadToVrindavan.com. That's my documentary. This episode is brought to you by RoadToVrindavan.com documentary, uh, which is uh, looking at girls' education in India and the importance of involving men and boys as well. We want to create a truly equitable world for everybody. Let's dive in and hear the rest of this part two with John. For sure. And it's fascinating what you were saying about, you know, uh, remember who dug the well, because with any... um, uh, issue of inequality, like whether it was, you know, about women's rights or Black Lives Matter or the gay community. Uh, to to the people who don't quite get it, uh, the, there's an interim period where it, it seems too much um, until, you know, then some of those kind of prejudices and whatever are kind of rattled and broken through. And then, and then, and then it kind of tends to normalize. But you do need that period of kind of where, where potentially to some people it seems too much, as you say, just to kind of, just to kind of really like deal with the you know the, the issue, um, uh, and then and then as you say it does maybe decades later or whatever it's, it's lots of things are then just accepted that that wouldn't have been accepted without that kind of uh, perhaps um, you know pushing. And accepted and celebrated, um, even potentially. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's right. And you can see that playing out in different cultures. Now, if you look at um, uh, attitudinal data, for example, somewhere like Nigeria, which is hugely homophobic as a uh, a culture, nonetheless, Mm. there is slowly a kind of sort of shoots of of acceptance and toleration where people are kind of starting to say a bit like, oh, I don't care what these people do in their own home. I just don't want to know about it. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of dawning. And... Um, and of course, that that in our culture now would be completely unacceptable. We don't want to be tolerated. You know, we we want we're here, <laughs> tolerate. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, but nonetheless, that's kind of cha- it's how change happens. And yeah, it takes those brave souls to be out there, um, to be uh, to be visible. Uh, Bissy, a friend of mine who's a, a well-known. Um, uh, gay rights activist, LGBT rights activist in in Nigeria. I remember him talking about um, portrayals of people in the media, and and I was t- saying to him, yeah, how how do you how do you deal with the fact that every time in the in the media in Nigeria, gay people are portrayed, it's like they are perverts and pedophiles and criminals, and, uh, and it's like no, that's a good thing because. Before there were no gay people in the media. <laughs> so at least it's being talked about. <laughs> so it's um, it's a hard road. Interesting. Yeah. Wow. So what you did next by going to Mother, the agency, the uh, that's where I met you actually. So I think the first time we met was when you were there. I had just <clears throat> finished my MBA. I was also kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do, but I knew very much that I wanted to be. Um, at the crossroads of uh, impact and uh, that had kind of been, you know, thought of that previously to that as charity. And then sort of I was seeing it in the world of social enterprise and increasingly then business as well. Um, And I think I was doing a piece of research for Unlimited, the Foundation for Social Entrepreneurs, and I came to interview you as a stakeholder for that. Um, 
and uh yeah it was uh it was an interesting place big agency lots of table tennis tables and all that kind of stuff what was it like uh being there what what did what was that period like it was wonderful it was such such a fun to to, to work at. and you say a big place you know having come from uh mother uh, uh sorry having come from ogilvy which is just the most the biggest agency in the world you know mother has like about 120 people that had it mm. um it's tiny actually but it was uh d doing hugely creative work uh at, at the time and it's again now actually it's having a real heyday again uh at the moment annie and Hermet anna, anna and hermeti as uh, creative directors doing a fantastic job um there now but at the time it was you know just doing uh, really breakthrough new kinds of uh, of work it was winning all the awards there were to win uh all, all over the world everybody wanted to do an internship there to get a job there it was just like the most fun place um to be uh, so much so much energy uh, and so many lovely people as well it was a it was a blast and did um, you uh, did you kind of get that job off the back of Ogilvy in in many respects because you'd come from the big agency do you think or um I was actually via a client um one uh, a client I was working with uh it was uh, um, coca-cola I was doing a lot of work with coca-cola in Asia and uh, and they they wanted me to um, work for them in in asia but actually at that point i, I didn't want to be in asia much more i actually wanted to come home and uh, and so they were like well look if you don't want to work for us in asia why don't you work for our, uh, our agency in the, in london and that was mother and so they introduced me uh, to mother so it was it was it was that that way around that that, that happened Cool. Well, yeah, and, and and the basis on which we kind of met and I suppose connected was around that uh, element where brands or corporates were at least thinking about or implementing strategies related to purpose or social impact or whatever. What was the Coca-Cola thing the last mile or something? Wasn't there an initiative where they had these incredible distribution channels and they were uh like medicines and things were piggybacking into their uh, distribution channels was that one of the projects it, funnily enough that came a few years later um mm. but it actually was via coca-cola that i ended up getting into the whole uh social impact space uh with business in a, in a bit of a roundabout way um because i i remember finding myself uh at uh at a dinner in the in the uh, so bear with me in the british embassy in addis ababa <laughs> Okay, <laughs> and uh, um, and everybody went around the table um, uh, and, and introducing themselves, and um, and they were all like, "Hi, I'm I'm from like you know uh, UNICEF. I'm from Oxfam. I'm from." Uh, so they're all basically there doing amazing good work, and and I was there at the time. I was you know doing advertising for Coca Cola, and, and so I very apologetically was like. Yeah, hi. I advertising for Coca-Cola, and um, and their reaction was uh, really interesting. Um, they were basically saying, "Look, if you think about the impacts that organisations have in, in environments such as Africa, yeah, you might say that few organisations have had the the positive impact that an organisation like Coca-Cola has 
via its supply chains, via training people up, building factories, train, you know, uh, employing people through the distribution networks, uh, which are enormous um, throughout uh, uh, the continent. Um, you know, poss- they, they were saying, you know, pop, uh, an organisation like Coke has got, you know, uh, as much opportunity to make a positive impact as a- any one of these charities. And that was news to me. Now, it's not such a, this is a long time ago now. It's not, you know, the, the companies now have kind of woken up to that um, that possibility. But at the time, it was a new thing. And, and I remember going back to, um, you know, the, the guys at Coca-Cola and saying, are you aware of what people are, are, are saying? And they were completely, you know, taken aback uh, by it as well. But what, you know, twigged in my mind was, can we close that loop? of the potential positive impact that mm. business can have on some of the, the big material issues. Because I, th- uh, yeah, which is, which is, which is really looking on the um, opportunistic side in a good way. But I suppose some, you know, many people would also argue, well, potentially they could, but at the end of the day, they make a, a pretty sort of health hazardous sugary drink, uh, you, you know? Yeah, for, uh, for sure. And, you know, and I'm not like um, flying the flag for uh, Coca-Cola here uh, uh, at all. Um, mm. What what I would say is, you know, for, for me, what I became interested in was kind of what I think of as the plus one. So um, if you imagine like the line going from, from uh, minus one through zero to plus one, you've got a whole bunch of negative impacts that companies have on the world through the products and services that they make. Do they have too much sugar? Do they have too much salt? Um, through the um, the uh, you know pr- practices, the uh, the processes that they employ, um, you know, are, are they dumping toxins into rivers? Do do they have you know uh, children working in their supply chains? I mean, really important uh, uh, questions, things pe- businesses need to be looking at. But that gets them back to zero, right? Because like they should that stuff shouldn't have been happening in the first place. That that's basically not having a negative impact on the world. Yes, yes. The interesting question uh, that I became fixated on was how can these businesses start to think of having a positive impact uh, on the world through the way they do business, through trying to include people in their supply chains, through making products and services that actually make people healthier, not not uh, less healthy. So. Um, that that became something I was trying to do uh, at Mother and had, had a, an interesting time doing it. You know, we had like we did some fun work. We worked with some interesting uh, companies. But uh, but fundamentally, what became clear over time was that, you know, if your main client ultimately is the marketing director, um, that's not the conversation is not really going to go that far. You need to be speaking to the um CEO and so I had a, a, a um, fortunate meeting um, while I was at Mother. I was kind of like the politics nerd of the agency too. And so um, this guy, Sir Alan Parker, comes into um, uh, Mother. He's got like a pet political project he wants to explore, and so I end up talking to him and um, and you know, end up learning about uh, Brunswick, which is mm. kind of where I now call home, um, really, and. Um, and it's a really interesting uh, place. I mean, you know, I hadn't heard of it before I met Alan. Um, but actually, once you get to know a little bit about what kind of company it is, it's just totally fascinating. I mean, Brunswick works uh, as advisors 
um, to at very senior levels um, to C-suite um, for you know lots and lots of the biggest companies on the planet. Um, wow! So, uh, you know, advising often on financial situations, so the M and A moments, the IPO moments, on regulatory issues, on you know, uh, the, what, what what the firm calls business critical issues. Yes, and. You know what? What I wanted to explore um, was: can could Brunswick do that um, uh, through the lens of societal impact too? Because a lot, increasingly, a lot of the a lot of the business critical issues that companies are facing are societal issues, and and so could we set up a practice within the firm, within Brunswick, that advises clients on their role in society? You know, what role do they play on some of those big business critical uh, issues and how can they how can they try and play a positive role how can they try and become you know legitimately authentically with accountability part of the solution and, and not always part of the problem um that's kind of where i'm at now so i set that up uh with um uh, lucy parker uh my uh, uh partner in crime um on the business and society practice we we set that up nearly 10 years ago mm. uh, and it started really very much uh, um, uh, with the spirit of adventure, you know, like uh, of experiments, like what what's possible here? Who knows whether there's anything to do here? But, um, you know, we found that um, uh, pretty quickly we were getting conversations at, at very senior levels. Um, we were finding that lots of senior business leaders wanted to have that kind of conversation, um, you know, which became a conversation about purpose, as you say, what's, a, you know, what, what, what is our role as well as delivering financial returns to, uh, you know, our, our shareholders? You know, how are we delivering social value to our other stakeholders? I get, I mean, if you, if you look, um, at, you know, now, what, what was very much a peripheral uh, conversation um, has become a mainstream conversation in the world of business. You know, you've got, you know, pre-COVID Davos in January 2020, was all about stakeholder capitalism. You know, it's what people were talking about. The US Business Roundtable, which had been the kind of epicenter of you know, uh, red in tooth and claw capitalism, has been talking about businesses need to define their purpose. So you know, it's been fascinating over the last 10 years, you know, nearly 10 years we've been doing this, watching, watching this discussion go from being, uh, oh, that's a nice, interesting sideline, but, you know, it's not really relevant to the core of the business, uh, to become the mainstream conversation uh, in business. And now, you know, we're in the last couple of months with, you know, we, we were worried that COVID struck and, you know, we're thinking, does this mean that all our clients are going to put their, you know, uh, societal value projects on the back burner? They're going to not worry about talking about purpose right now. They're going to, you know, just focus on survival. It's been really interesting seeing companies adopt, learn very quickly how to have a dual focus. Uh, and they do, they're recommitting to, you know, we want to send a, a clear signal about uh, our, our, our commitment to purpose, our commitment to playing a positive role, you know, on the issues that are around us. They want to be seen to be stepping up uh, on the response to COVID. And then of course, Black Lives Matter happens and everybody wants to speak out. On it you know and they're all paranoid about not wanting to be seen to be jumping on a bandwagon so everybody's scrambling around going you know we need to do more what more do we need to do um 
So all of these themes, you know, themes around the role of business in society and how businesses scrape up against the difficult issues in the world. Um, they're now part of the mainstream business conversation. They're on the board agenda. The CEO wants to talk about it. Um, so it's been fascinating to watch that journey. And I think it's fascinating too, because like you say, right now, they they kind of have to be hyper aware of it because it is on everyone's sort of minds, if you like, particularly in lockdown, there's, there's, everything is kind of magnified at the minute. But they, the ones that haven't been on the journey won't be able to suddenly pick it up right now. So it's been a, it's like you say, it's something that's been going on the last 10 years. What I think is fascinating in terms of a pattern is that when you went to Ogilvy, they were interested in your slightly peripheral thing of the disruption. And then when you've come to, well, you went to Brunswick to, to I guess, have that conversation about purpose and, and with a, let's say a more senior, more visionary kind of uh, level of people within the business rather than just the marketing function. But again, it was still peripheral and now it's becoming mainstream. That's very, very exciting. I actually wore my uh, yeah. B, B Corp t-shirt for you today. <laughs> Which, you have uh, say again? You have a t-shirt for me. Oh no, I, oh, I, you can't see me at the minute. Let me show you, let me quickly show you. So I was just saying I wore my B Corp t-shirt for you oh. today. <laughs> um, so my company, Be Inspired Films, is part of the B Corporation movement, uh, which is just one of the movements which is trying to um, engage business as a force for good. Um, and I think it's really great. And I know when I chatted to you before, you had some thoughts on, uh, and you kind of answered it by the plus one thing, but sometimes people are like, um, oh, but are their intentions right? And is it coming from the right place and whatever else? And you gave me a very interesting answer, a very sober kind of answer, which I appreciated. Uh, do you remember what you said? Well, I mean, if you're talking about why do, why do businesses, you know, want to talk about their purpose, uh, or why do they want to be seen as part of the solution um, to some of these big, big challenges? Lot, lots of people often say to me, aren't they just doing it to, to, cause it looks good. Um, and you know, I, I'm like, I honestly don't care why they're doing it. I, I mean, we need these businesses to be part of the answer. The world is facing enormous challenges. Um, you know, they have to be part of the picture. You know, too many of them are part of the problem, whatever it takes to get them to the table. Um, so mm. I, I think you're, you're in a sort of weird moralizing game when you start to go, oh, but do they really mean it? I don't Yes. I mean, but the thing that you do find is when they start to act, it really feels good. When you see companies that actually start to have a, a tangible positive impact on the issues uh, around them and doing that is making business sense and it's good for their leaders you know it, it mobilizes animates the leaders the employees um, and is having a positive impact on the world around them it's great it's a positive spiral what we need to do is just like ignite those more of it yeah of it now but i would i would say i mean in the last kind of year I think I've I've had a, a a question in all honesty about the work that uh, that we're doing because, you know, I think we've worked with, you know, we've honestly worked with some of the biggest companies on the planet and we've got them to make big one eighty degree changes on environmental issues on societal issues, and I'm hugely hugely proud of that. But increasingly, I'm kind of looking at the of the changes on the climate crisis uh the um 
the ferocity of inequality and how endemic it is and how structural it is. And it feels like there's an awful phrase um, which I heard um, at, the, at the end of last year, which just is in my head, which is like running up a landslide. And I, and I fear that a lot of the work that we're doing, no matter how big and seismic the impacts that we, you know, the, the, the changes that we can be part of creating with the companies that we're working with, is it enough? Um, is it deep enough? Is it uh, um, structural enough? Um, mm. And so more and more what we're trying to do is get companies to think in terms of, you know, the, the systems that they operate in and uh and real leadership is is today not thinking about you know are you fixing it in your back backyard you need to be fixing it in the world for the world that's really the challenge uh uh for companies but that's a that's a tough ask uh, it is isn't it it's a it's actually you reminded me just then of uh, john elkington um who we've had the fortune to work with a couple of times and he talks a lot about that too like um incremental slightly better changes is not enough um but then there's the big question isn't there um as individuals uh as companies whatever it is are we willing to accept that the system change or that the change that's needed might mean that we need to have less and that's the bit that uh, is often very uncomfortable because it's like yeah it'd be good if it was better but i don't want anything to change in in what i have <laughs> uh and that's that's kind of a tricky one I mean, I, I think a lot of the heat that's often directed towards corporates is a sort of psychological displacement activity um, because we are the ones, you know, uh, jumping on planes and uh, filling our fridges full of whatever. And, uh, you know, we, we, want, we want the material luxuries. Um, that, and they are luxuries. Uh, mm. You know, we've, got, we've gotten used to. We, we want our, um, our smartphones. I mean, it's inconceivable that we would now have life without a smartphone. But the complexity of the global system that is required in order to create a smartphone is actually quite bewildering if you spend any time understanding what it takes. How many thousands of border crossings go into, you know, mining a rare earth over here and having it, you know, uh, the smelter in, uh, over there and then combining it with something else over there and shipping that part to be, you know, it's a... Uh, there, there's something like a thousand plus, um, you know, uh, trade transactions in in a um, in a smartphone, and um, that's a complex system. You know, it's a hugely um, uh, fragile system too. It's not particularly resilient against uh, the supply chain impacts that we might expect if climate uh, the climate crisis, you know, really starts to to take effect. Um, so. We're going to have to rethink quite a lot of those things. And when, when I say we're going to have to rethink it, I kind of mean us as... You and me, yeah. Citizens, as users, yeah, absolutely. And so a lot of the time we saw this played out, you know, you see it time and time again in the palm oil stuff that was happening about a year or so ago. Um, people being so angry and boycotting palm oil. But actually, palm oil has been the price we've paid for cheap food, um, you know, for a long time. And, um, and so on and so on. It's kind of... It, the problems actually, and you're hearing this now loud and clear in the conversation about Black Lives Matter. Um, the uh, the conversation is not over there. The conversation's here, um, and that's mm. what we we need to take that attitude uh, across the board. Mm. Yeah, for sure. And um, I was just thinking, what's quite interesting is is that 
uh, being at Brunswick because um, they're, let's say, trusted um, for the the very uh, sharp end business type uh, decision making. Do you think that that was a suitable vehicle because of that and that trust to start to have those conversations with those senior people about purpose? Like, in other words, if it, if you were, if someone was trying to have that conversations with them, that perhaps wasn't in the vehicle that they trusted so much around things like money and stuff that it wouldn't have been so effective. Yeah. I mean, if you think about, um, I can, the life of a, a CEO, for example, um, yeah, they are surrounded by people telling them what they should do and what they shouldn't do. Mm. Uh, uh, they're surrounded by people that have got agendas, people that want something out of them. Um, it's a to total minefield. Every way they look, you know, there, there's risk and jeopardy. Um, and so most people who are trying to, you know, talk to them about their relationship to society, the risk is you just become another voice you know, telling them, oh, but you've got to think about this and you've got to think about that and you should do less of this and you should do more of that. Um, but I think the wonderful thing about being able to have those conversations in a in a context like Brunswick is, you know, we sit shoulder to shoulder uh, with those business leaders and we're on their side, you know, and when we're, you know, I mean, I kind of, I, I, I kind of caricature this a little bit, but you know, we we sometimes are sitting down with business leaders and actually what they're saying to us is a little, goes a little bit like, why does everybody hate us? <laughs> and we go, yeah, I know. Mm, interesting. Let's have a look at that. And that's how the conversation progresses. You know, we get to go, well, I know you think this, but actually when you look at it from these guys' point of view, it looks a bit like this. Do you see what I mean? So it kind of, we get to channel the issues and represent, you know, what it looks like um, to the world. And because, they fundamentally, you know, we're on, we're we're sitting side by side, uh, and we've got their back. Um, they listen to us, you know. That when it works, that's like the the relationship when when mm. it's going well. Mm, that's brilliant. Um, and you yourself, um, you know, in more recent years, I'm not sure exactly how many years, but you've developed, you've had some great progress with it. You've uh, developed this initiative, Open for Business, right? And again, what's fascinating about that is. I love your kind of pragmatic approach and ultimately the result is good. Uh, but by taking out that kind of moral sort of judgmental element to it um, and tying it to, to a pragmatic result as well, you, you kind of get the double win if you like. So tell me a bit about that. Yeah. I mean, that's become a huge part of my life actually. I mean, op open for business is a, um, it's a coalition of, uh, of big global companies, um, uh, all uh, campaigning for LGBT rights uh, around the world, focused particularly on countries that are hostile to LGBT rights, so countries that have got anti-gay laws that uh, persecute people in some shape or form, that have got very hostile social attitudes. Um, and the co coalition has got some amazing companies in it, in a, a, a quite broad spectrum of sectors, everyone from sort of Google and IBM through to the McKinsey's and EYs of this world and people like Burberry and Inditex. And um, so we've got some, some, we've just had Dow join and Unilever join and uh, Ikea and Deloitte uh, actually just last month um, joined. Um, so it's a, it's a brave thing actually, it's not a trivial thing to do for these companies because oh 
doing what well, if you're doing business in Russia or in the UAE or in Indonesia or etc um you know take taking a position on LGBT rights is a contentious thing to do and so these companies doing it is you know it's uh, it means something actually Right. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I, you know, um, and maybe you can tell us the story about how it kind of started in a sec. But like, because my initial thoughts would be, yeah, they might th you might speak to the person individually, and they would be like, yeah, John, you know, I I support that, I I get it. Um, but it's not really something for us as a business to have to put our neck out on the line. You know, we want to be able to do business in that country, you know, for our business purposes, and if they do or don't agree with it, it's kind of not really anything to do with us. So how did you kind of, what were those early conversations like? And, and, and I suppose, you know, what do you think it was that made so many of these big companies actually, you know, as you say, bravely, bravely support it? Well, I mean, I, I think what we did was we, we tapped into some really deep seated values in the kind of business psyche in a way, um, which is, you know, the co companies do genuinely believe in, in meritocracy, actually. I mean, there's lots that gets in the way of that. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of barriers that gets in the way of that. But you can think of some examples like take IBM, for example. You had uh, IBM in the uh, deep south of the US in the 1950s opening up desegregated factories um, when that was an illegal thing to do, when segregation was the law. You know, mm -hmm. we've uh, say the same company, uh, you know, was um, paying equal pay for equal work across the genders about two decades before that became um, became law. Um, I mean, there, there's a kind of impulse, I think, in lots of businesses that um, the e equality of opportunity is good for business. And so it's a question of expanding the circle of who's included in that um, uh equal opportunity um so it was kind of tapping into something that is is there and talking about it in the language of business so you know the first thing we did was we put together the the business case and the economic case for lgbt inclusion so then we get to be going look we're not talking about we're not we're not asking you to talk about human rights here this is a this is a business issue and so reframing it as a business issue and then people come along with you and i think actually we were also partly answering a problem because I think a lot of these businesses were, you know, very uh, happy to be sponsoring pride in San Francisco, as it were. And, you know, you get a, a thousand employees turning up with their company T-shirts on and everything's great. And then the same company gets asked, will you sponsor pride in Moscow? What do we do? Yeah, it, yeah. I mean, and then it looks really like, but actually, we kind of would like to say, yeah, because otherwise people are going to say you're only doing it when it's easy. Um, but we can't say yes, because it's, you know, um, there are all sorts of difficulties and, uh, and implications to taking a public stand like that in a country like Russia. And so partly what we were able to do is go, look, well, it's difficult for you maybe as an individual company to take a very clear stand on some of these issues in specific countries. But we can do it as a coalition. Um, yes, it's stronger together, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose it's also that that idea of tapping into potential, isn't it? If if not everyone is um, at the table, then you're potentially not building the best team or having the best diversity and stuff like that, right? And there's tons of evidence for that. I mean, that's kind of what you know, a lot of what we did was collect together 
a lot of that data go go find the the evidence that you know um that teams perform better that individuals perform better that companies perform better um, when they're inclusive when they're operating in inclusive environments and that goes right the way through to correlations with share price uh with profitability um so there's plenty of hard data uh ar around this you know it's very scattered but we we pulled it all together and uh and presented it amazing oh well done it's 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 brilliant and i i, I must say i love your um like I say, I love your shared passion for kind of social impact, but your pragmatism. Uh, I, I really find it very refreshing. And I I, uh, I think what you're doing in Brunswick is, is absolutely brilliant. Um, I, uh, I'm going to finish up now. We have, um, I ask everybody at the end sort of uh, to just say a couple of sentences um, on each of these big pillars of life, if you like, the six of them. Um, so the first one is uh, family and think about it through the lens of like maybe where you're at with it now, but if there's been a bit of an evolution for you uh, th throughout your life. I mean, um, what what's more important than uh, than family? Uh, and I, and what does that, I guess, means different thing to different people. But I, I have to say this, you know, I kind of think of my team as a family, uh, um, uh, you know, where, where I work. I think, uh, you know, both at Brunswick and our Open for Business team, you know, we spend a lot of time together. Um, I think of those guys as a family. I have a sort of a wonderful urban family, um, as well as like, you know, my family family who I, who I love dearly. Um, so, I, I mean, it's, you know, without sounding like a sort of staunch conservative, you know, that family. <laughs> Family comes first, no? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, friendship. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I'm, uh, I have a, a small number of very deep and long-term uh, uh, friendships. And, uh, and I guess, again, they're practically family um, for me. Uh, and, you know, to, to, have, to go through life with people that, um, that you have known you forever is just... Uh, such a massive joy but of course it's also wonderful um getting to know uh, new people and discovering you know the, the, the that kind of period of discovery um when you're you're seeing you're seeing each other's worlds through each other's eyes is also a wonderful thing yeah absolutely um and then uh, love love in a couple of sentences i mean you really are asking for poetry <laughs> you did say you spent a couple of years writing poetry <laughs> yeah you don't want, probably don't want to hear any of that even if i could even remember it i mean uh, i mean lo lo love is i don't know it's i feel like writing a cartoon uh to answer that question um what what can you say uh, about love in two sentences um uh, you know unless you're the dalai lama uh, or shakespeare um I, I i wouldn't i wouldn't dare try what role does it play in your life rather than trying to quantify it if you like um i don't know i'm really i'm really stuck by that question because I think um, it's like the the water you swim in, you know. Like the it's like asking the the, uh, the proverbial fish about the water it swims in. I mean, 
Um, I'm not quite sure what what um, wisdom or even description to give you that would be vaguely interesting or um, or additive. Well, it's interesting though because uh, you know that analogy that you used because the ideal perhaps would be to be living one's life as you say in that flow of love. Uh, a lot of people don't live like that at all. So, um, do um, do you have any intention of, of uh, is it an active principle? Do you try to approach your work and people you meet and stuff with love, or is it not such a conscious thing? Um, it's. Not, I think it's not such a conscious thing. I think. Um, uh, so this sounds a little bit grandiose, but. Um, I do try and approach things with, if I can, a, a spirit of service. Um, and that's, I think, gets you on the pathway um, to uh, 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 approaching, you know, your life, your work, uh, the people around you um, with with love. Um, it's kind of maybe a bit of how can I be of value? You know, how can I, how can I help? Can I, yeah. can I help? Um, is... And if that's the real question, um, maybe that gets you, maybe that um, moves you towards love. Yeah, I like that. That's that is actually, um, uh, again, you're you're a, you're a practical guy. <laughs> um, money, 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 money. Um, it's uh, oh, come on, that's like a, it's an output, you know. Um, Go on, you were about. No, I was just going to say. Um, so, yeah, don't maybe don't think about quantifying it for anybody else or anything. Like, what's your relationship with it? Is what, more what I'm I'm curious about. Like, what does it mean to you, or how do you think about it yourself? Uh, money. I don't think about it. I mean, much is uh, the the honest truth, um, which is a privilege. You know, I'm very aware of that. And I know that because there have been times in, in my life where I have really had to think about it. And there's been times in my childhood, too, where, you know, I remember my uh, parents having to turn off the engine on the car when it went downhill in order to save a little bit of petrol. Um, I mean, there were tough times for, for us when I was kid, a kid. Um, so um, but now now in my life, it's, you know, my, I, it's not it's not a subject I spent. I could probably be smarter and actually spend a lot more time thinking about it. Probably would be a good idea. But at the moment, um, it almost is an act of faith, you know, for me personally and also for the business. You know, if we just carry on doing the things we uh, we believe in and we do that in a smart way, then the money flows. That's the hope. And hmm. yeah, it's good. Um, and health. Health is, um, yeah, I mean, health is kind of, you know, your 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 mental, physical and spiritual being, isn't it, at, at the end of the day? I mean, for um, for me on the uh, the physical plane, uh, I had a, uh, 18 months ago, uh, a, a pretty shocking diagnosis of uh, leukemia. Um, but it's a um, uh, a chronic leukemia, so it's very slow. It's very slowly advancing uh, leukemia, um, and and there's every chance that you know it could be decades before I need any kind of treatment with that. But the doctors at the same time are keen to kind of caveat that by going, or at any moment it could just you know. So it's 
it feels a little bit like kind of walking around with an unexploded bomb in my veins. If that's a weird. How did it feel when when they get when they told you? That must have been a bit of a shock. Yeah, it was. Um, it was. Uh, 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 it was. A, it was a shock. It was quite traumatic, actually. It was a huge feeling of panic, terror, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sudden realization of like you actually are going to die at some point. Um, is always a, a scary thing to actually realize. I did also talk about love. Um, I felt just an extraordinary flood of love for the people around me as you know suddenly being aware of this sort of uh, imminent potential mortality and um and also a kind of a really lovely and deep appreciation for just the mundane things around us the mundane day-to-day world we live in you know is kind of beautiful uh actually um i mean it's 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 changed a lot about how i how i see things but it's and at the same time it's you know now I've come to a, a, a place with it, realizing that you know I'm I'm very healthy, and um, uh, it's not something I need to think about. Um, yeah, I go, I get, weeks go by, and it doesn't even really occur to me. But it's it's an it's an interesting reality, and and at the same time, no different from anybody else's reality. You know, I just happen to know a thing that potentially could kill me but actually we all have things that potentially could kill us we just don't know what they are it's very fascinating actually because there's um you know you mentioned earlier about india and yoga and sort of the the sanskrit texts and stuff there's an ancient text from india where uh, one sage asked the other what's the most wonderful thing in this world and he said well it's that everybody is going to die but everybody is living as if they're never going to die um and so you know people think well we die when we get old but what does old mean it means in some ways close to death and of course we know and you know from the example of your brother that any of us could die on any day um and as much as that's a we don't want to get super heavy about it but it is a reality um and yeah so, it is in in you know in in a way kind of wonderful reality i mean certainly I've noticed that I, there was a time when uh, I, I would kind of pass by old people, and um, uh, and you kind of can't help but feel a little bit like, oh, isn't that it's so sad to get old, isn't it? But now I look at them and think, you lucky bastards! <laughs> <laughs> how wonderful to get old! I mean, how absolutely wonderful to be old, and like with all the aches and pains and whatever might come along with that brilliant that's what life's all about so bring it on <laughs> yeah absolutely and has there been any small things that you've uh, changed uh, as a result has it um, changed your your outlook in in any way oddly oddly not it's um it's definitely um reinforced for me um you know uh, a, a kind a sense of why bother doing things that aren't worth doing um you know, I mean, I've kind of, I've had that really since I lost my brother, um, actually, but it's definitely, um, yeah. it definitely kind of throws, it kind of, it kind of encourages you to kind of use a little bit of discernment um, in, in your life and without, without being high and mighty about it, like, oh, well, am I, is this worth my time? I don't really mean that, but just a little bit of like, is this really a real thing? A, a gentle question, actually. Uh, uh, and that's, that's important. I think hmm. that is a good point like to because our time is however long we do have our time is our real currency isn't it yeah. um 
And lastly, um, creativity and expression. Is that uh, how does that play out in your life? Um, possibility. Uh, I think that is that. That's how I would de describe that. I think the um, creativity. I, I, I always think is um, a, a daunting word for some people. Um, so for me, I think I just think of it as like uh, just having a sense of possibility um, and and creativity. You know, ideas flow from that. Really, if, um, uh, you had two words: creativity and expression. So expression. yeah, mm. um, yeah. I mean, that isn't isn't that just about having something you think is worth saying? You know, having something that you mean um mm. and, and and saying it having something that matters uh and and saying it um that's uh, and then and then if you have something that you mean and that matters um to you uh maybe it matters to someone else too and so you've got something someone might want to listen to and i think that that's both a deeply personal thing to say and also basically the advice that we give to our clients you know does this matter to you and why and uh and do you you know what do you mean really um and if you can get that's that's really a kind of simple search for truth for saying something that is true um and and if you can get apply that to your own life you apply that to your work um you know hopefully hopefully you are expressing something that's that's worthwhile expressing yeah that's beautiful it's a very interesting thing and i've heard it said um i think it was terry wogan who said I said to him, how many listeners do you have? And he said, uh, just one. Um, and it was that idea. And, and some of my musician friends have expressed that same idea. The things that are the most deeply personal are also the most universal. Yeah. So I love the point you made there about if it's if it really matters to you, then there's a good chance it uh, will matter to others. Uh, if Harry Wogan said it, who are we to argue? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, John, thank you so much for uh, speaking to me today. I really appreciate it. And um, I look forward to following your work uh, as as I have to say, I um, I definitely um, admire and appreciate the stuff that you do. So thank you. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that. Please make sure to subscribe, rate and review. I really want to create a community of us who are sharing and evolving together. Uh, as I said earlier, I see you on the stats there, but I don't know who you are. It would be awesome if you could reach out and share with me uh, what you're enjoying about the podcast or what you'd like to see more of. Next week, uh, I have Jacqueline Novogratz, a truly extraordinary woman. She uh, founded Acumen, which uh, is, invests both philanthropically and also in, in impact investment in um, businesses at the bottom of the pyramid in the developing world. And they've invested over a billion dollars in trying to support amazing entrepreneurs, often women um, who are really creating sustainability within their communities in really amazing ways. And she is just such a wonderful human being. And I really, really look forward to you uh, to sharing that episode with you and for you to, to get to know her. So I'll see you soon. In the meantime, have a great day. Have a great week. Thank you.